Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. You can find the club on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and the club's website, commonwealthclub.org. I'm Alexandra Sewich Bass, Senior Correspondent for Technology, Politics, and Society for The Economist, and your moderator for tonight's program. This program is generously sponsored by the Jackson Square Partners Foundation. It's now my great pleasure to introduce you to tonight's distinguished speaker, Tim Wu, professor at Columbia Law School and author of the new book, The Curse of Bigness, Antitrust in the New Gilded Age. Professor Wu teaches antitrust, copyright, media industries, and communication law. He served as law clerk for Justice Stephen Breyer and has worked at the White House, National Economic Council, and the Federal Trade Commission, as well as in the Silicon Valley telecommunications industry. He is also currently a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. Professor Wu has testified before Congress on multiple occasions, has twice been named to the Politico 50 list of those transforming American politics, and was also named one of America's 100 most influential lawyers by National Law Journal. His earlier book, The Master Switch, is required reading for anyone looking to understand the media business and its trend to consolidation. Today, he will discuss his views on monopolies and technology and the implications of a few massive firms controlling a global industry. Professor Wu argues that the failure to curb excessive corporate power poses a great threat to the health of American democracy, just as giant trusts did during the Gilded Age. Please welcome Tim Wu. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Um, Tim, it's a pleasure. I've enjoyed your book thoroughly as you write. You've written a small book about big companies, um, and it's a wonderful history looking back at antitrust enforcement um, and then to the present day. So I highly recommend it. Um, To start, I want to ask you about this trend toward corporate consolidation. It's of interest to The Economist, too. We've written about how we've seen in recent years three-quarters of industries become more consolidated in America. It's a huge issue. What do you think is driving it? Can you point us to some of the central drivers? No, I've been glad The Economist has been interested in this. And I I should say that uh, there's a lot of reasons I started writing this book, but part of it was uh, in my later period in in the Obama White House, where I felt that uh, the economists, the macroeconomists particularly, in the Obama White House, were like, oh my God, what's happening here? It's like as if they'd noticed the, the hole in the ozone layer over Antarctica. And, and the thing they noticed was uh, two, two things. So first of all, a lot of people had noticed there's been this enormous increase in wealth and, and income disparity uh, that, that everybody knows about. But they were also particularly interested in the fact that so many industries, which had, had been relatively competitive, had reduced to, to, to just a small number of companies, you know, two or three or four companies, some of them fully monopolized. And they, they saw this as a kind of crisis, and they didn't really know what to do about it. Um, I uh, became interested in this, and I, as I said, I, I think the, one of the major reasons is that we have, at some level, uh, given up on the... F- primary uh, goals of the antitrust laws, which were once to ensure that the economy was competitive, that that there was not monopoly uh, domination of most industries, uh, that you could expect um, that mergers that would create these conditions would be blocked. And I think we've lost sight of 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 this policy, of this program. I think it has had serious effects for the American economy. I don't think it's the only reason we have problems with inequality and wealth, uh, income and wealth inequality, but I think it certainly contributes. I think it contributes to some of the labor problems we've had in this country, um, the sense that you have just so few employers, they, they don't need to, 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 to give an inch uh, to, to workers. And so uh, I wrote this book with a sense that it was time for something, uh, uh, you know, your shtick is right, it's a small book about bigness, <laughs> that it was time for, you know, sort of a one-volume introduction to what this American tradition was, what the ideals of it were, and how we lost it. I feel this is a country that 
is constantly forgetting its own traditions. A country that is surprised to hear that once America was understood and prized for its equality among citizens, people thought that was what was, this was Alexander de Tocqueville came to America and said, you know, it's amazing. This country is just, it has equality in the way we've never thought of in Europe. A time when, when, you know, people thought monopolization was a crime that should end up with people put in prison. <laughs> we don't do that anymore. But, you know, that, that there, there is traditions in this country of, of, that get forgotten. And uh, the goal of this book is to sort of reintroduce the American people to their own history, and particularly their own concern with corporate concentration, monopoly, and, and, a, and, a, and a private power that at some level runs the risk of rivaling public power, even taking over from democracy in terms of who, how things get decided, and ultimately uh, runs the, the risk of, of, of really hurting the form of government that was established by the American Constitution. So that, that's a lot in there, but those are some of the reasons I wrote this book. And um, talk, g- give us a couple case studies, if you don't mind. So tech is an industry that is top of mind for everyone in this room. Yes. Um, but you point out that this is a much broader issue in the American yeah. economy. What are the case studies that you think we should be looking to? Yeah, case studies, uh, they're not case studies because they're actually real. <laughs> I guess case studies are real, I don't know. Uh, you know, I think most of us have experienced uh, experience uh, th- this in, in, our, in our, our daily lives. Some of the industries are more or less well known, but um, if you fly in an airplane, you might have noticed over the last like twenty years or so, there's just four major, four or three major airlines, depending how you count. And you know, in some ways, the airline industry is a tech industry, but it's the only tech industry where actually it seems to sort of get worse every year. <laughs> the conditions of flying it, you know, if you're in business class, everything's fine, but in general, the um, uh, economy class has gotten uh, worse and prices have not really gone down. Um, across the United States, there's uh, something like 67 million people whose only broadband option is is the cable monopolist. You know, just one company. Uh, the, you know, the prices of cable have gone up and up and up with uh, no real uh, relief in sight. In fact, some, some people study the industry say that the problem for the cable industry is that the cable bill is starting to compete with food in lower class, you know, in, in poorer neighborhoods. So they're reaching the upper limit on how far you can, much money you can extract uh, out of people. Um, this is maybe not as earth-shaking industry, but uh, in, in, I've done a lot of work in ticketing and concert tickets. And for some reason, we allowed uh, Ticketmaster and Live Nation, the two monopolists in their respective fields, to combine. And since then, uh, you know, ticket prices have gone up and up, and and um, the fees on Ticketmaster go up and up, and you know, all these things. There's, there's. I, I didn't even mention pharmaceutical. I mean, the mm-hmm. pharmaceutical industry has it has a lot of problems, but um, the pharmaceutical industry specializes in in use in combining market power and, and patent power, uh, and also the fact that people rarely. Um, have a lot of choices when they buy. People are unwilling to refuse life-saving medicines or refuse to pay for them because then they'd die. And, you know, the ability of the pharmaceutical industry to raise its prices, but, you know, so much greater than inflation or, or jack prices is another problem. The antitrust law has not been able to come near to solving. So we have a, a whole series of problems that are, I think, caused by the antitrust law. And let me just continue for a second. I also think it they contribute very strongly, this sort of fact of concentration. Mm contributes to two very serious American problems. First, it, basic, political, uh, basic political science will tell you that the more concentrated an industry is, the more effective it is at lobbying. And, you know, it's a widespread idea that Congress, uh, in general, does not want do what American people want it to do. If you look at some of the polls, there's all these things that people would like, and Congress, what do they deliver instead? Tax cuts for, 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 um, for, for uh, corporations. So, and one of the reasons, I think, is the fact that industry is so concentrated that its lobbying prowess has gotten so strong that, that it threatens the idea of, of uh, a Congress that serves uh, uh, the people. And the, the, other, the other thing I'll say, I mentioned wealth and income inequality earlier, um, the more concentrated industry gets, and I'll walk you through, so this is slightly an economic argument, the more tendency there is 
for the returns, you know, the higher profits to go back to shareholders, go to management or a narrow class of professionals and not be extended to, to employees. And so, and this is something the economist actually is talking about, is you can see this, this problem of concentration being very related to the problem of, of wealth inequality. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you start in the last Gilded Age mm-hmm. rather than today's Gilded Age um, and look at some of the forces that drove the popular support for more rigorous antitrust action. Mm-hmm. Why did that? Why did we exit that golden era? Why did we enter <laughs> this freeze as you talk about it? Oh, why, why did we? Well, what so, was it back? Sorry. So mm-hmm. no, tra- tra- track us. So we saw this very invigorated period mm-hmm. for antitrust action. What what was the demarcation point where that enthusiasm stopped in your right, view? Right, sure. Well, let me talk about that earlier period just very sure. very briefly, if you don't mind. So I, I think some of the economic and political conditions of our time are not that much different than about 100 years ago. Uh, I'm not the only person to say this, but um, the, the problems that we're struggling with in, in the time of, of Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, about 100 years ago, was a sense that... Um, uh, there was too much monopoly, that there was uh, an economy that was dominated by trusts, that, that businesses were getting wiped out left, right, and center, and all for the enrichment of a tiny, tiny, ultra, not, not broadly, just, just a tiny number of people, you know, like a 0.1% kind of, kind of problem. Uh, J.P. Morgan, John Rockefeller, these are sort of famous figures of that era. Um, and second, people were so upset about uh, the way things were back there that you saw American politics of uh, about 100 years ago, begin to radicalize. You know, anarchists, anarchism became popular. There was a socialist candidate who was a serious, uh, like, like now, socialist candidates who were serious contenders in presidential elections. Um, a radicalization of uh, Democratic and Republican parties. And I think a lot of it had to do with the sense that people were upset about the economic conditions of their life and had the feeling that government wasn't doing anything about it, and they were just sort of losing control over their lives. And, and you know, being overworked by the employers, unable, you know, unions were... In those days, there was no protection for unions, so people would go on strike, and then they would uh, summon a militia to shoot them. I mean, it was a very different, worse than, worse than now, um, as bad as things get. And uh, that's why in the book, I give a lot of credit to Theodore Roosevelt for um, uh, for his sort of jump-starting of the antitrust laws. I, you know, he's one of many figures, but he had this particular thing, courage to bring cases against Standard Oil and really big uh, firms. And he did so for what I think is a really important reason is he thought that if the government didn't do something to prove that the people were sovereign, that even John Rockefeller, even J.P. Morgan had to listen to the Democratic elected leaders, he thought there would be another revolution. He thought that they will turn to something much darker, much more intense. And in some ways, he was right. I mean, the United States did this antitrust campaign. You know, they, they passed some legislation. They broke up a lot of companies. Um, uh, you know, they restarted sort of more normal types of competition. Other, some other countries didn't do that. Um, uh, and... Uh, especially in the West, uh, you know the German, the German, the, the Germans didn't do it. The Japanese didn't do it. Uh, they they left their uh, monopolies in place. In fact, encouraged them uh, to, to in Spain, sort of the same thing. Uh, Soviet Union sort of rushes its own story, but all these other countries did experience revolutions, and I, I, that's one of the lessons of our time. I try to bring it to the, the present, but I think it's one of the reasons I believe in antitrust enforcement is I see it as kind of an alternative to socialism. Or, or, or even more, or nationalism, fascism. As I think that, you know, if people, p- people get angry when they feel that the economy is completely out of their control. So this isn't really answering your question, but it's, no, it's no, getting no. this point. It's I can answer that question um, now. I, so I, there, there was a strong antitrust movement in the United States. It was, and sorry, just, yeah. to, just to interrupt you though, um, fueled by journalism, Ida Tarbell was yes, really right. important in drawing attention to the abuses of standard oil. And as you said, the treatment of workers. So it's true. You know, as a, a female, there were not that many female journalists at that point, but this, uh, uh, Ida Tarbell had this monumental role in explaining to people the sort of inhumanity of standard oil. They'd sort of been thought, ah, oh, you know, standard oil, just some company and, Whatever, but I, she she 
kind of, I think, shocked people with John Rockefeller's treatment of, of smaller companies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they just thought, how could he be so inhumane? What's interesting now is he, you know, he, he put up so many people out of, out of business. We've sort of accepted the idea that that's, that's normal, moral conduct to bankrupt your rivals. At that time, people thought it was crazy. You know, they couldn't believe someone would take these measures to deliberately bankrupt their, their rivals. And so there's another interesting story about the development of, of different types of business morality. Um, but you um, originally asked about when did it all... Did it all... The, when did we get it, come into this freeze? Yeah, so I'll skip a lot of history. I will say that antitrust, you know, was a mainstream project in the United States, really in its strongest in the 50s and the 60s. Actually, the... the even though I talk about the progressive era, after the war was a period where I think the antitrust fire was burning the, the strongest in the United States. And why was that? That was because there was a widespread belief that the economic structure of Germany and Japan, the fact that Germany was dominated by monopolies and cartels, and that Japan was dominated by the Zaibutsun, if I'm saying it right, um, that these economic structures had been the economic origins of fascism. And so in the United States, after the war, you know, there was a lot of people who were uh, worried, so we got to double it, we got to even increase any American antitrust law, make it stronger. R- Roosevelt, uh, President Roosevelt was of this opinion. Um, it, was, it was really, uh, Eisenhower took the same view. So... There was a strong impetus, and and it reached heights, and, and maybe it went a little too far, because the, the Justice Department in the '60s um, became uh, so hard on mergers, so intense. They they had a new law, the anti-merger law, that even relatively minor mergers were being blocked. Uh, so, the famous examples in Los Angeles: two grocery chains were trying to merge to create a grand total of 7% of market share. So no, Justice Department blocked it. It said, you have to start somewhere. These things will creep up on us. Then all. So they were blocking everything, and it engendered a, a backlash, a, quiet at first, with that reached increasing powers. The, the center, central figure in this backlash is a man named Robert Bork, who many of you may know because uh, he uh, was Borked. He <laughs> failed, to, <laughs> failed to become a Supreme Court uh, justice. He's probably sort of more famous for that than half the people who became Supreme Court. But whatever. Well, tell, he, us, why, uh, tell us why he should be famous, because he's the one who came up with this yes. more welfare argument. Yes. So, he, uh, so, so Robert Bork, um, relying on, on people at Chicago, University of Chicago, um, <laughs> which I don't like, believe in conspiracy theories, but University of Chicago was funded by Standard Oil originally. I don't know if you... Anyway, it's an independent place. Great, great. But they were actually founded by the Rockefeller, sort of Rockefeller family revenge. I I don't think they ever directed them to do anything. So, and I I used to work at University of Chicago, so I don't want to put any... But anyway, that that was that. And um, so the Chicago in the the early 60s, uh, they they came up with a new theory that said, you know... Antitrust should not have these political aspirations. It should not have these goals of trying to help uh, employees, trying to um, uh, resist excessive corporate power. It should be focused on one thing and one thing alone, and that is lower prices for consumers. That is the only thing that antitrust law should do. That's what the economists at Chicago said. Now, Robert Bork um, is brilliant, was an, was an absolutely brilliant attorney. And uh, he realized that the economist saying, oh, you know, should be all about prices, wasn't doing it. So he went back to congressional history uh, and did this article, which has been widely um, denounced and refuted. Nonetheless, he said, the original intent of Congress, when they passed these antitrust laws, had always and ever been that the only thing that matters was prices. So all that matters is whether or not these activities have resulted in higher price. You know, it has sort of a nice, consumer welfare sounds very nice. It's, um, in fact, true that one of the downsides of monopoly is it raises prices. But uh, he, uh, you know, and, and so it, it caught on. Uh, it also, I should say, uh, dovetailed with um, a growing, another growing conservative movement. So by the end of the 60s and the 70s, um, 
conservatives, Republican Party, had felt that the judiciary was out of control. You know, they had legalized uh, abortion. They had these, all these free speech rulings defending hippies and war protesters. They um, uh, had created the, the Miranda rules about search and seizure. So the Supreme Court was clearly out of control, run by the former governor of uh, Warren, uh, Earl Warren, the former governor of California. Had, and, and so conservatives were, were trying to control the Supreme Court. And Bork tied, tied his program of antitrust um, reduction to the sense the judiciary was, was out of control. You know, he said, this is, this is part and parcel of the same movement. And the reason that was so successful is when Reagan, you know, was elected and, and started trying to crack down on the judiciary, in with that came this, this Chicago School antitrust. And so in such an almost record time, Robert Bork went from this sort of obscure and his followers, you know, scholar kind of guy to someone who had set the antitrust policy for the United States in just 20 years, of, of, which is an extraordinary change and, and a, a tribute to the power of ideas. Which brings us to the tech question. Sure. So central to the argument of people who have... Who have supported no action on the antitrust side is the consumer welfare and price argument. Well, how can Google be bad? It's free service, Amazon, Facebook, et cetera. Uh, What's your counter to that? Sure. Uh, Well, let me say one thing about tech and antitrust. I was just reading another, sorry to spend all my time in history, but you know, I'm an academic and uh, I, I was, there was a historian who was saying every 20 years in American history, Someone has claimed that tech, that antitrust should be gotten rid of because it is uh, because tech has gotten rid of the need for antitrust. <laughs> it uh, was he, said because tech every, firms disrupt each other. It was said in the it was said in the nineteen tens. It was said in the nineteen thirties. You know, there, there's always a tech industry. Um, you know, it just doesn't happen to be this tech industry, but there was, hmm. you know, a tech industry. It's just, uh, and so every thir- twenty or thirty years or something, we need to repeal the antitrust laws because. The new technologies make antitrust uh, unnecessary. Um, so when I was in um, the administration, the Obama administration, when I was in law enforcement, I would say that was the high, one of the high points of, um, uh, of the love affair between Washington, D.C. and Silicon Valley. Uh, there was a sense back then, and I, I will say I shared in some of it, that, that it was impossible for uh, tech to do wrong. Uh, Google, Facebook, maybe Apple did some funny things. They fixed prices sometimes. But these other companies, you know, they were, they were giving away their product for free. Um, you know, all, all they want to do is show you an ad now and then, not, not very many. Uh, and, and was that because the Obama administration was so close to the tech industry? I too think, close? Well, I think it was a number of things. Um, some of us had spent time at Google so that, or other Silicon Valley firms. So that, was, that was part of it. I think also it, uh, it went beyond. I don't think it was like, you know, Larry and Sergey were putting money in the pockets of people. Or, actually, they were of academics. <laughs> not change, me. I never, right? I, I, not me. Change. I didn't take any money. They were putting a lot of money in a lot of pockets of economists. So that, that's, you know, that's what people do in Washington. Uh, you, know, you know what someone said to me the other day was a lobbyist. He goes, you know, the thing difference between journalists and, and academics is academics are a lot easier to buy. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you got to give some credit to journalists. I give some credit to journalists. If you offer journalists, you know, thousand dollars, $10,000 write a good story, I don't think you would, 20, I assume yeah. you don't, wouldn't do it. But an academic will do it. <laughs> maybe, maybe 40. Maybe, I mean, once you raise the number to a certain amount, they'll, they'll do it. They'll do it. <laughs> I, I personally uh, try to avoid that, but they'll do it. Um, <laughs> And there'll be a complicated reason for why they, they need to feed their family or something. Um, you know, you can't make it on... Economists can't make it on a mere $200,000 a year with academic salary. I need much more. Um, no, I, it, it's, a, it's sort of disgraceful, frankly, our academic profession, how easy we are to buy. But that's an aside. Um, that's an aside. So I, I, some of it... But no, inside government, I just feel... I think many of us, maybe some of you uh, still feel this way... Um, uh, there was a sense that, you know, a company like Google or Facebook, was, it was like operating a charity. You know, and you wouldn't want to investigate the Red Cross. Um, 
and say they have a monopoly on 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 on, uh, on rescue operations. It was like you know, so these guys and they seem really nice. They were young, younger demographics, so people people liked them. So I think there was a great sense that they really could do no harm, and it caused us to make some, I believe, serious errors during that period. And I'll, I'll be able to describe a few. Please. Um, so the main, I think the the cardinal sin, I can talk about some others, but the biggest mistake was not stopping some of these companies from buying off all their competitors and, and eliminating them. So uh, Facebook in particular. So Facebook, as everyone knows, um, 2012, starting to re- face some questions about its revenue. Um, suddenly there was a young new company that had a great demographic and was on mobile and basically you could do all the stuff you wanted to do on Facebook um, but more easily, quicker, and of course, this firm was uh, Instagram. And there was a sense, um, I think a lot of people felt, that Instagram was going to do to Facebook what Facebook had done to MySpace. In other words, been sort of younger, hipper, more interesting, and then Facebook would start to fade. So, <laughs> um, you know, Facebook could have, and I think they did try to develop their own photo thing a little bit, mm-hmm. but then that wasn't going too well. So suddenly they realized, and we'll just buy them. Right. And, well, they, they got the insights early with this other acquisition they did, Onava, right? So they were able to true. see how people were spending time on their phone. And yes, was Onava before? Yeah, I guess they were. So they knew they knew already about this this thing. I mean, it had happened earlier. You know, YouTube, Google, and no one thought this was a problem at the time. I think maybe we should think about it again. It's like Google had its own um, competitor to Google called Google TV. Uh, to YouTube, so YouTube called Google Video or something like that. And it wasn't, um, you know, doing as well as, as YouTube. Now, usually, the, the instinct of the antitrust law is to say, well, you know, if you have someone as a competitor, you, you don't let them buy their competitor. You, force, you want them to invest to get better so you have some competition, right? But that didn't happen. They just said, oh, we'll just let Google buy them. And Google admitted, they're like, no, we're not as good as YouTube. Well, we're going to buy them, and that's fine. And we'll, it'll only be YouTube. And it is basically, Vimeo is sort of small there, but they're, the usual antitrust policy would have asked them to stay in the market, you know, not let them buy it, so they'd be forced to develop their own competitor to YouTube. But no, we didn't think that way. So we kind of, WhatsApp is another one. I mean, WhatsApp had this huge, uh, so WhatsApp, I assume people in this room know who they are. There's this big uh, alarm bell, which is they paid $18 billion for this, relative, for this company, which to anyone who does antitrust enforcement is called a split the monopoly payoff. Usually, only pay that kind of money if you project you're eliminating enough competition to make it worth it. It happens all the time in drug and drug and uh, drug deals, mm-hmm. where two people basically agree not to compete, and then they have some big payoff, and, and everyone knows what's going on. For some reason, I was oh no no they just uh, they're cool they want a global profile or whatever. So, so everything was like, oh, these guys, they're, they're cool, they're young, they do good stuff. So I made all these, these mistakes. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. It, 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 was hard, it was harder than that, right? Um, yeah. Because they, they, what do you define as the market with WhatsApp, right? Yes. So they had zero revenue. That's right. Um, in Instagram's case, it was even harder because That's they right. were really small when they were purchased. So what are the metrics that antitrust enforcers should have looked at in those right. instances? Yes, it is easy to, to look at things twenty twenty. Actually, that's why I believe we should break this up retroactively. <laughs> and that's something I uh, describe we'll in the book. To, and yeah. Yes, we'll, but we'll I, I think they we'll should, because I think it is, I agree with you, uh, to give some more credit to my friends and the agency. Um, it is hard to know. I think what they, I think the key problem is they didn't understand the metrics by which the industry was operating. So they were looking for, for cash, but these firms were competing for attention. You know, they were, they were competing for audiences. Um, Facebook, it is true that Instagram didn't have any money yet. Um, but they did have already, I think, 34 million users at the time. They were growing faster than Facebook had. And they were eating right into Facebook's attention markets. It's engagement. It's time. And so I think if they had been able to figure that out and figure that these were competitors, at least they put some conditions on it. The mergers were just, you know, completely. In fact, the, the American stuff is secret. The the, the memo which approved it uh, may one day become public, if I have my way. But the British, the British off, the British also examined this and they released their analysis. If you read it now, 
It's probably the most embarrassing thing. It is embarrassing because it says Instagram uh, does not yet have any advertising revenue, so they're not competing with Facebook for use for advertisers. And uh, and they say Facebook does not yet have, uh, or Facebook does not have an important camera application. Yeah, <laughs> so they they're not competing with Instagram. Photo app, rather right? Than photo. Social they don't have network. this thing, so they're. Therefore, we can safely conclude that these companies are not competitors and will not be competitors in the future either. They're just like a rant, and it's, yeah, no, it's, it doesn't look, it look so good. In fact, there's some, the person who wrote that, anonymously heard the person who wrote that, um, is like seeking vindication in some way. It's going to try to do something to try to prove, anyway. He's an academic now. Yeah. I want, <laughs> <laughs> For hire. So, yeah, so I think we blew it um, on, on Facebook in particular. Uh, you know, Google, I think. Uh, I don't know if Tim O'Reilly is still here, but we had an investigation going of Google. Some of it I can't talk about because I was in there. But I don't think we were able to think about the problem that that Tim O'Reilly calls the problem of a platform eating their ecosystem. We had no way of getting around. And that was the problem presented by Google. You know, Google had very successful search, a great search engine. No no one denied that they, you know, came, came to power fairly. You know, it was better than, than Alta Vista or Bigfoot or whatever the Lycos, some other ones I forgot. But anyway, they, they were better than the other guy, the guys. They got there fairly, but they kind of started to reach the end of, of, of profit of, of, of revenue. Mm. And so then they had to sort of go out the ecosystem around search and start eating chunks of, of that out and impoverishing everyone surrounding them. And, you know, maybe that's just regular business, but maybe there's something there. And we have no way of kind of grokking that, <laughs> of like figuring out if that's a harm or not, or whether it's a big deal, or whether in fact they're going to, which I think has happened. I think the web has become sort of impoverished by the sense that if you go anywhere near the search engine, any of those verticals, they're, they're, they're just kill zones or you know instant death. Mm. Like there's no use. There's like a couple people straggling along. <laughs> but you know stuff that is search-dependent, other than Amazon, which is their story, is... is, is and some, so I think, you think we blew it's it. a mistake that American antitrust officials haven't taken action against Google in Europe. They certainly have. They have. I, I'm not 100 percent fond of what they've done in Europe. Europe has a, I uh, have great respect for my European friends. They bring a lot of cases, but they have a really weird way of, of finishing their cases. You know, like a writer, some writers can start a book well and finish it. <laughs> but, uh, and that's, that, that's how Europe is with antitrust. I hope there's no... Are any, uh, Bad endings? Uh, yeah, they just don't know how to... You know, when it came to... I'm sorry to get in the weeds here. When they investigated Microsoft, they, Europe, they became obsessed with this thing called the Microsoft Media Player. And so they insisted that every unit of Microsoft would be shipped with the option you could also have real players. It didn't matter to anyone. It was like a... Tr- they, they do it. Anyway, this is... Aside. So they, they should have... You know, with Google, I like that they're looking at it, but I, don't, I think they need to come up with a better remedy. Everyone needs to figure out the right remedy for Google. I think the most obvious is you need to keep a Google at some hand length from, from its ecosystem. You have to think about this problem of, does, does Google start, I think, to eat its own ecosystem? You know, everything around Google become a, a shade where no one can grow? And try to like limit that power. And I don't know if we know how to do it, but that's where the remedy should be. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. Mm-hmm. We have a question here about which tech company is most likely to see action from for the leader of America, the new president, whether it's after 2020 or today. Who do you think is most vulnerable? Well, I think it'll come before that, frankly. Um, I think it'll come before the you next president. A, so you think it's a 2019 uh, tw- action? Or maybe or 2020. Maybe 2020. Um, there's these other entities called states. <laughs> And uh, if you haven't noticed, they also consider themselves to be sovereigns. They also have antitrust uh, divisions. And I think they think, you know, there's this, I worked in state government too, and states um, watch the federal government, and when the federal government doesn't do something, 
that people think should happen, California and privacy, for example, they, 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 they get active. And so I think... And we I, saw that with Microsoft, didn't we? We th- saw the state yeah, AGs. It's true. So I'd be willing to... Um, I'd be willing to bet that the states get at this, and I think their target will be Facebook, mainly because it's the legally... I mean, some people will say, oh, you know, Amazon such an effect on employment. But th- this gets very legal. But the, that particular issue of Facebook acquiring its competitors illegal is, illegally is very vulnerable, I think. And, I think and, ali- the, and it's illegal because... Because the um, laws of this nation ban mergers that substantially reduce competition. Um, and I th- challenge anyone in this room to tell me that Facebook controlling WhatsApp and Instagram does not reduce competition. <laughs> some people, maybe some in the room will make a case, but I think it's not the hardest, it's an easy argument to make that that merger reduced competition. And I think you, and let me dwell on the effects. Um, I think that Facebook has not felt competitive pressure in, in the realm of social networking because they control their main competitors. They felt a little bit from Snap, but they managed Snap, there were no Snap, Chat. It's not everybody. Well, they tried to buy Snap. Actually, they did. They did try the same playbook yeah. again, but it didn't work. Um, they eventually bludgeoned Snap with Instagram <laughs> and WhatsApp. They 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 managed to to yeah. to, to knock uh, keep to flatten them them out, uh, stop their growth from going any any further. Um, but no, I think the the harm needs to be wait for from this. So you were talking about prices earlier. I think the harm of Facebook feeling that it doesn't really face competitive pressure comes in several uh, directions. I'll, I'll name three of them. It's all right. One is they've been able to keep adding more and more and more advertising. And, you know, people, if they don't have anywhere to go, they just kind of, they deal with it. Now, when MySpace had too much advertising, everyone remember MySpace? People all went to Facebook. But now it's too much advertising on Facebook. There's no, no place. Second, this is the most obvious to me, is because there has not been a more privacy-protective alternative to Facebook, they've been getting away with murder on privacy. They felt no serious pressure to do anything. They may start to regret that when the FTC finds them $5 billion in the next week or so. I, I don't really know that's going to be, but whenever, when they find them, $7 billion. But they have felt that they don't really need to be serious about privacy. They can... And just to pause, this, this fine is um, over the Cambridge Analytica yes, that's right. yeah. data leakage yeah. that we saw last year. Yes, I was at the agency in an important, this Federal Trade Commission, at a time where a lot, it turned out to be an auspicious or a non-auspicious time. And then the third thing is I feel that they haven't really, like I, I think Facebook, they've sort of woken up a little bit, but they haven't felt, because they have no competition, I mean, that's the problem with no competition is this sense of impunity. Because I feel they've felt sort of immune to government scrutiny. They've been willing to run enormous security risks that I think led to some of these problems in, the, in, in electoral manipulation. And in a sense, they could kind of buy themselves out of all these problems. I think with, I don't think it's a cure-all, but I think if they had been facing tough, constant competition, um, that the story might have been a little bit different. And I think in the future, the story will be different if we can get some competitors to Facebook. So let me play devil's advocate. Why does breaking up Facebook solve the problems? Because there's two counters to that. One is that one of the face babies or whatever you call the new little... Um, I think they're called Instagram and WhatsApp. Oh. <laughs> okay, yeah. what, the three units. Um, one of them will ultimately win out um, and become the dominant one. Maybe it's not core Facebook because that's irrelevant to use, less relevant to users than it's ever been, but maybe it's WhatsApp or WhatsApp or Instagram that wins out. The other is that the government taking action chills the market because it ultimately is targeted action and other companies will worry that they might be arbitrarily targeted for political reasons or otherwise. Well, let me take the second. So sometimes people say, well, you know, you don't want to have antitrust uh, action because it will chill the incentives, um, you know, chill the incentives to to be an entrepreneur and so forth. I would submit that um, the prospect that after you've earned your first $20 billion or whatever, <laughs> uh, that then you might be investigated for antitrust, that that is going to stop someone from get, becoming an entrepreneur seems to me far-fetched. You know, uh, you know I, th- I think, uh, in fact, people f- run out of ways they can spend money after a couple billion dollars. They, they start trying to think, have to think of really weird things. Like, 
either like running races in this uh, San Francisco Bay Area. You know, they sailing races, things like like they do start to do weird stuff. You know, you run out of you run out of things to do. So I, I my, my point is, there is uh, it, there would be a diminution in incentives if you know an entrepreneur has a little bit of success, immediately gets attacked by government. That you don't want. But if you've had a monopoly for a solid five or ten years and you've earned your first uh, you know, billions and billions of dollars, if you're worth... I just can't see that being... Look, does, does, does the example of Bill Gates scare people into saying, oh, I don't want to go into tech? Look what happened to him. You know, well, he, got you a, he, argue, he had this, yeah, this you thing could argue that him. the action against Microsoft made tech companies be better behaved, actually, than... I'm, I think I'm a big fan of that action. Um, and that's kind of the spirit in which I'm suggesting new action. And then your first, but your other question is, okay, well, won't this break up these companies and eventually they'll all become one? I, it may be. I just think that um, that could happen, uh, but uh, we also presumably would have some oversight over the mergers. But I also think that it's very important to these industries, platform industries, big tech industries, that you... you, you in computer terms, reboot every once in a while, shake things up, re, you know, re, re, rejigger things. And I, I think it's important based on my time spent with the history. If you'll indulge me, I'll think of a couple of examples. You know, IBM was the dominant monopolist of computers for the United States for, for, for many decades. And um, eventually the antitrust department went after them. And IBM didn't like it. Um, they were subject to 13 years of investigation that it drove them crazy. But a lot of stuff came out of that shakeup. For one thing, IBM finally said, okay, we're going to let software be sold independent of hardware. So, you know, they, before they always sold it together. But I've you know, gone through the records. And the general counsel said, listen, we're, 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 we're going to lose on this issue. We're, you know, we're always forcing people to take our software with their hardware. So let, let's try and appease the Justice Department by, by letting software be sold as a product. So, one of the, so suddenly you have this idea of a software industry, right? And, and it starts, and then, you know, first it's just people who make stuff for IBM products, but then eventually it spreads, and eventually it's like companies like Microsoft or, or Oracle or Sun or all these. So, so like software is everything. So software industry. The other thing, you know, you shake up, you rattle a company like IBM. Um, when they started getting into personal computing... He did so very cautiously, um, almost as if an inter- antitrust attorney was there because an antitrust attorney was there. Because the case was still yes, going on. the case was still going on. <laughs> they didn't want, so they didn't buy Microsoft. They had a chance to buy Microsoft, didn't do it. And so I, you know, they don't, the whole, but there's this, the way you shake things up and then you, uh, you know, it's almost like gardening. Sometimes you got to kind of like rattle the tree or chop off a couple branches and then stuff will start to grow. I think that's what you see in, you know, I can give many more examples. AT&T is a very similar story. It broke AT&T into 10 pieces. They had a lock on American Telecom for 70 years. They had a lock, and as soon as you finally broke them up, just one example of a company that started because of AOL, because I you know, interviewed the founders, and this is uh, AOL. Uh, gets, and they're like, well, you know, we thought it was an opportunity, dial-up networking, that would be cool. Now, now you know, AT&T's not going to kill you. They're a little out of the picture, so why don't we start this kind of business? So AOL leads in CompuServe, leads to online networking, which leads to this idea of the mass internet, and suddenly you have this thing called the internet industry. So these, you, know, you need the spaces for small new companies to get started with ideas that the monopolists of now don't think are good ideas or for some reason are blocking. You don't know what happens when you chop down the tree. But is your view that even if the case isn't successful, as IBM ultimately wasn't, I mean, it was 12 years of litigation. 13, yeah. 13, ultimately not subtle. <laughs> um, is your view that if that if something like that happened in Facebook's case, the it's still a yes. worthwhile exercise? Yes. Good things will I don't happen? think you should just file a suit, you know, because you feel like it. But <laughs> if you have a credible theory uh, uh, that... The comp- of monopolization, that is to say, of a company maintaining its monopoly illegally. You file a suit, and if that results in that company under the scrutiny, you know, behaving a little better, it's called the policeman at the elbow theory. You know, if they start to behave better, if they decide, well, maybe we won't crush that little guy because uh, we're going to get more trouble, that's a big accomplishment. You know, I- IBM could have destroyed Apple in a second. <laughs> They could have bought out Microsoft in an instant. You know, Microsoft, had they not had the antitrust um, uh, 
uh, police on their backs could have uh, made Google die in early death because they would have controlled the Explorer. They had, they had the monopoly over the browser. Why not make it not work so well for Google and work better for Bing or whatever Bing used to be called? You know, why let Amazon get started on your platform? So there's all you know, these little tiny nudges, gestures where you open... And this is my idea of how tech policy works. My other, to support my argument further, is you look at other countries that didn't do this, that haven't had antitrust traditions, and you can, you can see that they've suffered. Uh, Japan, and if you go back, we rewound to the 80s, and sometimes it does feel like we're in the 80s, doesn't it? With, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so we rewinded the 80s, and we would be talking about Japan. You know, Japan, they've got it all figured out. They've got... Uh, tech of the future and you know what's great about japan is the government is on the side of business they don't try and break it they're not trying to chase around ibm no 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 uh, nec which is you know uh, they're no 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 they're investing in supercomputers you know they're gonna they have this project called the fifth generation project which is going to leapfrog all of american computing and make japan the supreme power of all computing um so that's what we would have been talking about uh, but the fact is because japan never broke any of their monopolists NTT, NEC, all these things. So nothing ever got started. They never developed a startup culture. They had some success with mobile phones, but everybody was always a little bit where, you know, was all, nothing could really upset the, the monopolist. And you, you just can see. And then by the 1990s, they had missed out on the personal computer revolution because they had decided supercomputers for the future. They had missed out on the internet and it missed out on, on smartphones. So after that, no one... When's the last time you heard about Japan? You know? I like this. So it's Tim Wu's Guide to Innovation. It's anti- embrace antitrust law. Embrace antitrust. I mean, it's not the only thing that can shake things up. I, mean, I think Americans are good at shaking things up. I think that's one of the reasons America is, is such an innovative uh, country. Is, um, you know, I, I, we have a faith, I think, that I, I've, I, at its best, I think America doesn't believe the future is known and has a kind of experimental mandate kind of we, we sort of celebrate people come out of nowhere and do something unexpected and I think antitrust kind of or, or these kind of regulations they have that same thought they're like they want to pin down the big guy a little bit so the little guy gets his chance and if the little guy fails oh well but at least he got his chance and I think we always need a little bit of this sort of you know, little breathing room, little holes in the undergrowth for things to grow. What do you think of this administration's appetite for antitrust action? No, that's actually, it's a complicated question. It, it because is, we saw a big case. Yes, very big Tom case. Warner. Very big case. So uh, this, which was a failure, unfortunately. So this um, administration, is this going to be unsurprising? It's unpredictable. They're, they're, they're well, here's what I don't like. What I do like about it is that they do occasionally bring cases. What I don't like about it is that they're giving antitrust law a bad name because there's always the suspicion that antitrust is just one way, one more way that you... That Trump you, gets it. That, that Trump that like, a finds, a way to, yeah, yeah. finds a way to, um, uh, to club his enemy, people, his personal enemies. You know? And so that, you know, like Jeff Zucker at CNN, or, or Jeff, like he has these weird personal vendettas. Or Jeff Bezos. Yes. Like and he's like, oh, yeah, um, okay, what can I do to them? Well, antitrust. So that, that, I don't like that. <laughs> um, so I, I don't like that. Um, and, and, and on the contrary, they've let some mergers go they shouldn't have. You know, they're not, there's a big merger going on right now, which is T-Mobile and Sprint. And they're just like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. Oh, yeah, it'll, prices will be higher, but okay. I mean, this is just old-school price antitrust. Oh, yeah, prices will be higher, but um, my friend's son, my friends at, at Sprint tell me it's, like, going to create a million jobs. So, okay, let's do it or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that's a, that's a it's, it's, yeah, no, I can't approve of the approach the administration takes. It's too completely personality-driven, mm-hmm. so I'm not into that. We have a question from the audience sure. about Amazon sure. um, and whether we're going to see action against Amazon. So that's an interesting question. Um, there's a lot of public appetite, uh, for, especially in my home city of New York. <laughs> there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, but, uh, and there's, there's a lot of people, you know, certain gr- a lot of groups have concerns about Amazon. As it stands, and this could change, um, right now no one has with antitrust at least, managed to quite put a glove on Amazon. 
they have, you know, antitrust still very interested in prices, and Amazon tends to, if not lower prices, at least offer some conveniences. But that could change, and I think it could change in more than one way. So one thing is if we start having evidence that Amazon, you know, eager to keep its its margins up, um, does what I talked about earlier with Google, where, you know, the, the Amazon marketplace has all kinds of third-party vendors. Um, and Amazon has a kind of a habit of trying to figure out which are the most profitable, successful products, and then making its own version of them, and then underselling those guys. And which some stores do, but, you know, the more powerful they get, the more they manipulate their search engine to try to make sure the Amazon products always win, then I think they could come in for it. But as of now, I don't think someone quite has that case as, as developed or straightforward. Um, if someone in the audience has a good idea for it, let me let me know it. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, I have an interesting question about it, whether there's a way to redefine antitrust to include abuses of public trust. Uh, interesting question. So not just deal with the the question of competition or any competitive behavior. Abuses of public trust. So are you sort of thinking of... So, like, this, so Okay, so let me actually answer that this way. I um, think that the origins of antitrust were more in this direction. So, um, although there's some dangers to it. So, you know, when Theodore Roosevelt uh, was enforcing the antitrust laws, he had the idea that there was a difference between a good trust and a bad trust. And um, he said, it's okay if you're a big, powerful company, as long as you behave yourself as a, as a good citizen, you're um, uh, maybe uh, you know, support the community, or nice act properly, uh, as opposed to the bad trusts who are you know, treating their workers badly, hiring militia armies, uh, destroying all their competitors and, and uh, misbehaving themselves. So, so that was an older theory of how antitrust should be enforced. And I think it still should at some level be in the back of the mind of, of enforcement officials, of which I was at one point, which is you do in your mind, I mean, so antitrust since the 60s, since the 80s has become incredibly technical. And the cases are, you know, well, if we run these equations, what do the prices look like and do we have a case and blah, blah. But I do think a good law enforcement official is thinking, does this company sort of a public menace at some level or they or are you know they basically behaving themselves and contributing to public good and i think that back of mind calculation which also gets to politics like are they interfering with politics are they destroying institutions that are important to american society are they basically doing more harm than good should be the basis of most government decision making at some level unless you don't believe in human judgment um, now, The Economist, this is a big fight inside. You know, the Economists want everything to be about numbers. But I think you can't get away from this question of judgment. And um, that's what I'll say. The only danger is it can become like Trump, where it's like, is that guy my friend? You know, is that guy my buddy? What did he say about me on TV lately? Okay, all right, you get a pass. Mm. And we, uh, not into that. <laughs> but I do think you have to have some back-of-mind thinking. One of the th- factors, in fact, could be, can be political effects. So I mentioned earlier that antitrust at the beginning had this um, link to to politics and the sense that we were concerned that monopolies uh, getting too powerful um, could uh, uh, overwhelm government, um, become too united to government, other political uh, distortions. Um, One way you, you could think about enforcing antitrust is thinking partially about the political effects. I'll give you one example. So I talked about AT&T and the AT&T breakup. So in the old days, there was just one phone company. They obviously dominated the, the uh, politics of telecom, right? And it was just them. And, you know, they tended to get what they want. Once they broke them up, suddenly it was like divided. There was like a long distance. Does anyone remember long distance? Yeah. yeah. So there was a long distance company and then there was a local company and they fought over like what the rules should be. So you suddenly had like, you know, some equality of arms in the lobbying race. And that's something I think we sometimes can, can think about. Or think about how if you allow a merger. So, for example, we allow the Sprint T-Mobile merger. Now you just have three, and there's no cost cutters. right? They're all, and, and so they all have the same incentives. There's no one bargaining or pushing to try and have slightly different policies at all. They're all just unified. And so the political calculus also cautions against it. I hope a state blocks that merger. I think they might. Hmm. Is, might be my home state. Is he, 
New York. Is your view that we have all the laws we need on the books and they just need to be properly enforced? Or do you think that the laws need to be adapted to today's age? (laughs) Both. So in theory, we have all the laws. Actually, the problem here is the judiciary. The the laws were passed, very broad mandates. But I I think Congress almost could just repass the laws. There's some ways they could adjust them. They could say, you know, big ultra-giant mergers should be more carefully examined, or the burden of proof needs to be on the parties merging if the merger is over, let's say, $20 billion. Like, we, need, we can't just have, like, a one-week look at a $20 billion merger. That we, we need to, like, force them to, to explain how this is going to uh, make things better. Um, but overall, if Congress just passed a law that said they meant what they said <laughs> when they passed these laws... Because there's been an enormous erosion uh, in, in, in these laws. They were passed by, you know, Congress has never repudiated any of the intent in these laws. They said, we want you to block every merger that reduces competition. We believe monopoli- monopolies are illegal, and we believe all restraints of trade are illegal. Now, if Congress repassed just say, the merger law again, uh, same law, and said it was true, that would be fine with me. Mm-hmm. There are other areas where maybe also um, we need to think about types of market power, kinds of harm we have trouble thinking about. So I'd mentioned that, you know, some of the harms around Facebook uh, that I perceive uh, have to do with, with privacy changes, you know, them. it's hard for antitrust enforcers to really get their head around that. They have trouble also understanding companies that are competing for attention instead of dollars. So there's some ways they could try to update them to some of the value mm-hmm. practices of our time. I mean, today... If the old days, you know, cash and property were the value, you know, the, the current, everyone knows this, but, you know, uh, data and uh, attention are, you know, the sort of 21st century currencies. And whoever's got the most of those ha- has an enormous amount of value. But the antitrust laws don't have a good grip on that, a good handle, a way of thinking about it. I have a question here. Um that's relevant. Do you believe companies like Snap and Yelp are owed damages by Facebook and Google? Um, yeah. I think, I mean, you'd have to have a, this, it's hard for me to give an opinion on that without, this is such a lawyerly answer, seeing all the facts of exactly what came out. We don't know a lot of what happened, say with Snap, Facebook. We don't know. I mean, we actually cloning, don't know. I assume. The Clone Wars. We don't really know if face, it's possible Facebook won on the merits. You know, that their product was better. You know, they have talented people on Facebook. It could be that they paid off all the influencers and every other person in site to use Snap, to use uh, Instagram instead of Snap, and, and, which is illegal. Right? <laughs> they could be they use their monopoly power and the monopoly profits push everything away from. And if so, then, then they're all damages. Yeah, treble damages, actually. And Yelp, we know actually that their results were higher quality than Google's own. Yes, that's yeah. right. So Yelp had uh, better, and and so yes, I think if the facts are as this is such a lawyer lands were proven, then they would be owed damages. You can give us a brief. We'll we'll accept yeah. it later. <laughs> uh, have monopolies shown up in the nonprofit sector, and what are the implications of that? That's a really hard question. Um, you know, is Wikipedia the monopolist of of online encyclopedia? Actually, broken into twenty Wikipedias. Uh, what would that look like? Like I said, is Red Cross the, you know, when there's an emergency, Red Cross is there, right? And, uh, you know, everyone sort of says, okay, Red Cross. So generally speaking, nonprofits have gotten a, uh, a free ride. But, you know, there's some, with some exceptions. So, but they shouldn't always. I mean, hospitals are nonprofits, often. Um, not all, but some are. And, you know, if there's a small town and two hospitals merge just to leave one hospital, uh, which then, you know, all the studies on hospital mergers are, are depressing because what happens after hospital mergers in small towns? <laughs> There's two uh, salient points. The prices go up and quality as measured by death rates uh, go up as well. In other words, go down, but death rates go up. Like there's nothing good about hospital mergers, in, in, especially in small towns. They're terrible. They should have never let any of them happen. It's that, that's the court's fault. Um, so those nonprofits like that, they, they, they deserve the scrutiny of the antitrust laws. Mm. Um, 
How do you think, so the robber barons, going back to this Gilded mm. Age analogy, the robber barons are now remembered as very aggressive capitalists who redeemed their mm -hmm. reputations through philanthropy. <laughs> yeah. How will today's robber barons or silicon sultans be remembered? <laughs> That's a good question. I think part of it depends on our conversation uh, here and whether, you know, as I've predicted, some, some of... Uh, the figures undergo heavy investigations and ultimately uh, breakups. I mean, I think that one of the big things that happens during a big investigation um, is that you find out what the company is really made of. I mean, this is one thing that... Oh, I think Bill Gates like, really changed Bill Gates. Bill Gates was a very aggressive guy. Um, you know, he uh, was kind of... Remember the 90s? He was like this evil nerd guy. He had big glasses... Um, before it was like a hipster thing. <laughs> and he, uh, uh, so his, he was sort of exposed uh, by, this, by this action. And uh, it, I think it forced him to sort of uh, mature and experience some sort of a need for redemption. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's an important, this gets a little bit deeper, but in, in a democracy, uh, I think it's important to insist every once in a while that people are actually sovereign. You know, that there is this, this, this final kind of other, other check. And when exposed to it, it can actually be a good thing for people who've never had any other check in their lives. And so that's, I mean, I'm, this seems weird, like I'm prescribing antitrust for the souls of magnets. <laughs> but there's some, some truth to it, and I think it will, you know, sort of forces, and maybe just become bitter and angry. But no, I think it will... I think that process could be healthy for this country. Well, Bill Gates um, is a classic example of what to avoid um, in provoking regulators. He had this unbelievable quote now where he says that the worst thing that could happen with the FTC is he could fall on the steps of the FTC, hurt his head and die. Uh -huh. um, and of course, regulators proved him wrong. And I think right. that this generation of tech leaders have certainly learned a lesson and are much more careful about poking yeah, the bears. It is a little unfortunate, but um, that's why you need to get in their emails. <laughs> no, I mean it. I, I just, I'm an investigator talking. That's why you need to figure out what's going on. Because I agree that everyone has learned uh, in, in tech that uh, you, know, you just need to... So, but, you know, people... If there is evil doing afoot, there starts to be refugees from some of these companies mm. and people start to talk and whistleblow and you know and and i i i don't think it's a it's and that's you know a sign and i i think you can be as careful and have as good pr as you want but if if you are engaged in stuff that really is dark people will eventually start to talk mm. and maybe i'm totally wrong maybe i'm wasting my time and maybe Silicon Valley is uh, as squeaky clean as uh, as a uh, as a sink in your in these new buildings. <laughs> I don't know what the metaphor is, but I think there's going to be a day of reckoning. I think it's starting already, mm. and I think um, I think we're at the beginning of it actually mm. of this of this sort of reckoning. So. Take us forward um, uh -huh. and leave us with a few predictions. So you predicted that before the 2020 election, we are going to see major action, probably against Facebook and a campaign to break them up, yeah. possibly led by state attorney generals. Yeah. What else should we be expecting? And who's the candidate that's going to be bearing the antitrust torch? <laughs> oh, I think, think so. Okay, so on the la latter question, you know, it's a little optimistic to think antitrust will become a major issue in presidential debate. Elizabeth Warren. However, has however Elizabeth Warren, and yeah. also don't uh, don't undersell. Uh, you know, sometimes it's talked about in different ways. It may not be talked about as like Section Two of the Sherman Act, but they may be talked about like, are you interested in breakups or not? Like, where, where do you stand on this? I should also note that uh, the 1912 presidential election was fought almost exclusively by the antitrust. You go back to the speeches, like half the speeches are about antitrust. And so it has been a... And there was a party called the Antitrust Party. Every party, they were crazy about it at that point. And I think we're in another one of these periods where we're sort of deciding... I mean, it's not only antitrust law, it's a whole bunch of things. It's like, what kind of economy do we want? What kind of country is this going to be? Um, you know, who's really, really in charge here? And so I think there will be a divided... I think, I hope, actually that there will be a, a divided field on the Democratic side and that people are pushed to say where they are on this stuff. Uh, 
Hmm. You know, why did you not oppose? In fact, I'll name a candidate, Kamala Harris, who I love for a lot of reasons. Some reason is not willing to come out against T-Mobile Sprint. The rest of them are. She's not. And I wish someone would ask her, why is that? You know, you think this is good for people? Why do you think she isn't? I don't know. I don't know that much about her. I know she's a prosecutor. I know she was AG here. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they got to her. I mean, I don't know. Telecom is like, maybe I've been in telecom too long where, you know, people fear telecom. You know, they, um, people like having telecom on their side. Maybe that's, I don't know. I actually don't know. But someone should ask her. Mm. See what the answer is like. Um, so I, I think, I, look, I, I think um, antitrust, it sort of seems like a narrow issue. But there's a broader question, as I've tried to suggest here, is whether um, people in this country can get the economic policies they want. And I feel like that doesn't feel like it's happening right now. I think that's one of the reasons people are so angry. I think they, 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 they want, they, they think that companies have gotten too big, have too much control over power, and they're interested in candidates. Uh, Trump was like this too, who credibly suggests they're going to do something about it. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, the candidate who will succeed in 2020 whoever uh, it will be, Republican or Democrat, will be the one who convinces the people of the United States that they will actually give them the economic policies they want, you know, on all, not only on tech, but whatever it is, drug pricing, public infrastructure, all these areas, all these things that are, for too long, have been off limits for Congress to do anything about. That's who I think will have the wind at their backs. Mm. And you think antitrust is going to become sexy again? It already is. Look at this room. <laughs> Here we are on the stage, right? On, on that note, I have to conclude. I have a closing tweet, but Tim, thank you so much. Thank you. Our thanks to Tim Wu, professor at Columbia University Law School and author of the new book, The Curse of Bigness, Antitrust in the New Gilded Age. We also thank everyone here, as well as our audience on radio, television, and the internet. This program has been generously supported by the Jackson Square Partners Foundation. I'm Alexandra Sewich Bass, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. Tim, thank you.